Welcome to the Historical Motion Picture Organization, a podcast in which I interpret ancient historical events as if they were the basis for dramatized HBO-style productions. Our first fictional HBO production, The Poison King, will explore the life and times of King Mithridates VI of Pontus in his struggles against the Roman Republic and his attempts to preserve the existence of the waning Hellenistic world. So in our previous episode, the petty squabbling and underhanded debauchery between Mithridates and the other Hellenistic rulers in Anatolia has kind of caught the attention of Rome and political tension is starting to build. Let's move to episode 3 of our HBO series. The Cappadocian crisis continues when Ariarathes VIII, the Bithynian puppet, dies of grief. Laodice the Elder, ever the schemer, has a pretender claimed to be Ariarathes VI's third son and rightful heir. I mean, did he even have a third son? Uh, it's possible that he didn't. Mithridates must be getting sick of his sister and his nemesis nipping at his heels over Cappadocia. So now we have a kind of pseudo-Ariarathes IX. And this kid is an imposter, you know, put forward by Laodice the Elder who claims that he's the third son of King Ariarathes VI. He was the monarch who was clipped in the very beginning of all this. He was the guy who got a little bit too independent for Mithridates, so he sent his consigliere Gordius over to clip him, and, you know, kick this whole Cappadocian crisis into motion. So this kid is supposed to be the third son of, uh, of Ariarathes VI. This is the second Ariarathes IX who's claiming the throne. The other one is Mithridates' bastard son. It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So next we have a great scene where Laodice the Elder appears before the Roman Senate and swears this to be the truth. That, you know, this Ariarathes IX is the legitimate one. He's the third son of the old king. And that he should be in control of Cappadocia. And of course, I mean, this suits her agenda pretty well, doesn't it? This means that her and Nicomedes III can take Cappadocia for themselves. Mithridates sends good old Gordius to argue the Pontic side of the case. The Romans, you know, in a kind of attempt to appear fair, order both sides to concede something. Mithridates has to leave Cappadocia altogether, but Nicomedes III must leave Paphlagonia. That's the kind of buffer state in between Pontus and Bithynia. Cappadocia is to choose a new ruler, as the troubles in Anatolia seem to have killed the entire of the last dynasty. But the most important thing to note here is that these troubles have now been brought directly to the Roman Senate. This localised bickering is growing in scale. And I know these dynastic disputes can be tricky to keep track of, but if you take away anything from this mess, this Cappadocian crisis, this power vacuum, let it be this. The Romans are now paying attention to this part of the world, and that's not good. From Mithridates' perspective, that's not a good thing. He doesn't want them paying attention. He wants to be able to further his own agenda without the Romans really noticing. The Romans install a puppet ruler in Cappadocia, Ariobarzanes I, and he's chosen after Rome's decree to end the Pontic-Bithynian dispute over the region. The Romans, with their eternal disdain for kingship, 
cannot understand why the Cappadocians actually want another monarch. But in the Hellenistic Near East, kings are king, and they're seen as the mark of legitimate statehood. So Sulla, and remember we mentioned this guy last episode, Sulla was a one-time protege and now mortal enemy of Marius, who Mithridates had that very fateful meeting with recently. And Sulla is on his way to uh, fight some pirates in Cilicia, which is in southern Turkey. And he makes a little detour to Cappadocia, you know, he personally crowns Ariobarzanes, kind of putting the Roman stamp on the whole thing. And this really scuppers Mithridates' plans to have Cappadocia kind of clandestinely brought back into his orbit. And during the crowning, Sulla allegedly makes a speech where he warns the minor kings of Anatolia to cease their land-grabbing. I can kind of imagine a scene wherein Sulla, on what's supposed to be a diplomatic mission to kind of install a friendly government, goes off on this venomous rant in front of a crowd about petty eastern despots. An excerpt from Empire of the Black Sea explains the Roman attitude to kingship, which was so prevalent across the Near East and beyond at this time. Quote, the traditional Roman antipathy towards kingship was also a factor in steering up eastern attitudes against them. They had abolished their kingship by the 5th century BC and had a strong distaste for the institution. Perseus, the last king of Macedonia, felt that Roman policy was to eliminate all kings one by one, that kingship was a respected institution and indeed a desired form of government was almost incomprehensible to the Romans. The actions of the Cappadocians can be seen as proof. They demanded that their kingship be restored when the Romans abolished it, feeling that to be deprived of a king was an insult. Yet the Romans could hardly understand why anyone would prefer to be governed by a king. End quote. This is yet another example of the yawning dichotomy between the Romans and the Hellenistic states of the Near East. Mithridates, a born Greek king of Persian descent, will cower to no Roman, even one with such a lethal reputation as Sulla. But the storm clouds are starting to gather. Mithridates then forms an alliance which will last for the rest of his life. This alliance will be with Tigranes II of Armenia. He was the ruler of the Kingdom of Armenia for 40 years. He became a son-in-law and close ally of Mithridates in the Pontic Kingdom's struggle against Rome. Raised in the Parthian court, amongst Persian traditions, he was allowed to take the Armenian throne with the understanding that this came with loyalty to Parthia. Tigranes had other ideas. And just a note on the Parthian Empire, which existed from 247 BC to 224 AD. It was an ancient Iranian state that arose through a rebellion against the Seleucid Empire. The Parthian Empire eventually encompassed a vast amount of territory in Western and Central Asia. Some of their earliest enemies included the Seleucids, the Kingdom of Armenia, and then eventually the Roman Republic, leading to centuries of fighting between the two over Mesopotamia. The Parthian Empire was a feudal monarchy, run by the Parthian elite, with Persian, Hellenistic, and some nomadic steppe cultural influences. The Parthians were feared and respected for their skills in archery and horse riding, though their style of ruling was less organised than the highly centralised Achaemenid Persian Empire from the previous centuries. So Mithridates forms an alliance with Tigranes by marrying his daughter Cleopatra to him. 
This helps secure his eastern border and strikes up a friendship with this powerful kingdom. So now Mithridates' eastern borders are far more secure, and he has a new ally with a very powerful army. He's free to look towards the west again. But the always volatile situation in Anatolia changes once again, when Mithridates' old rival Nicomedes III dies. He's succeeded by his son, who is crowned as Nicomedes IV. Nicomedes IV is categorised in the sources as a weak-willed despot, controlled by the Romans. So one of Mithridates' first, you know, kind of major rivals is dead, he's out of the picture. And as much as the idea of Mithridates running a sword through his old nemesis could be very narratively and visually satisfying, this way of ending their rivalist dynamic is much more grounded. Mithridates doesn't get his moment of satisfaction. Old Nicomedes III simply dies. His son and successor is not a pleasant character, however, and Mithridates sends an assassin named Alexander to kill him. But the attempt doesn't succeed. There's another character that's worth mentioning here too, Socrates Crestus. He was the half-brother of Nicomedes IV. He had popular support from the Bithynian people, and Mithridates decides to arm him to help him take the crown. So the attempt on Nicomedes IV doesn't succeed, but Mithridates isn't going to stop there, and he supports Socrates Crestus in his claim to take the crown. The Bithynian people seem generally more supportive of Socrates, but when Socrates gets to the Bithynian capital, Nicomedia, Nicomedes simply barricades himself inside his castle and a kind of a stalemate ensues. The Romans are sick and tired of this carry-on, From their point of view, Mithridates and his expansionist policies are the cause of a lot of this trouble. Mithridates has been told to leave Bithynia alone. It's a client state of Rome, and now he's actively intervening against its new leadership. In addition to this bullshit that's going on in the east, the Romans are experiencing yet another major conflict, the Social War. The Social War lasted from 91 to 87 BC. It was a conflict between the Romans and the other Italic peoples in the Italian peninsula. The non-Romans wanted to be classified as full Roman citizens, with all the rights and prestige and privileges that come along with that label. Some Romans opposed this demand and a savage four-year war began. Towards the end of the conflict, a series of laws promised citizenship to anyone who would surrender leading to the complete Romanization of Italy. And after this period, the term Roman usually refers to all inhabitants of the Italian peninsula, not just the Romans themselves. So while the Romans are dealing with this really convulsive civil war back home, they're acutely aware that yet again there's trouble in the east. Bithynia and Cappadocia were supposed to be passive client states, but they aren't. They're in constant upheaval. Why? because Mithridates will just not stop trying to absorb them. So finally, after years of half-hearted responses, the Romans are actually going to act in Anatolia. They send a commander named Manius Aquilius to restore Nicomedes to power, end the civil war, and impose order on the troublesome lands of Asia Minor. Aquilius was a follower of Marius, and was also a war hero of the famous Battle of Aquasextae which saw the utter defeat of the Germanic tribes threatening to invade Italy. Aquilius was an extremely greedy general, 
whose father of the same name was despised by the peoples of Anatolia. The older Aquilius plundered the land and destroyed the Sun citizens with poison. The Sun citizens were an Anatolian revolt against Roman rule when Mithridates was still a child. The younger Aquilius, now sent to restore order in Bithynia and Cappadocia, hopes to follow in his father's footsteps and bleed the region dry in taxes, bribes and extortion. Mithridates is forced onto the backpedal here though. He's not ready for full-on war against Rome. And now Aquilius is moving towards Anatolia with a legion of Roman troops. But a bolt from beyond the blue alters the situation once again. Socrates' crest suddenly dies. Mithridates recalls the Pontic forces that he'd given him to take over Bithynia. This allows Nicomedes to simply slither back into power. And just like that, this potential civil war in Bithynia just ends. Aquilius arrives with his legion and his lieutenant, Cassius, just as the crisis has spluttered out. The Romans pay a visit to Nicomedes, and I just picture this as a great scene, a kind of effervescent threat in the air as Aquilius, you know, kind of lectures the cowering Nicomedes. You know, I came to Anatolia for riches. Well, now the pretext for acquiring those riches, the Pontic usurpation of the Bithynian throne, is gone. Nicomedes IV complains in vain that Mithridates plundered his land and that there aren't any riches left. Instead, pressured by the menacing, heavily armed Romans, Nicomedes agrees to begin attacking Pontus, cementing his place as a wretched creature of the Roman Republic. The Bithynian raids into the west of Pontus, although successful in collecting some loot and a few riches to satisfy Aquilius, are otherwise met with eerie silence from Pontus. There are no Pontic armies, no citizens, just deserted villages and towns, clearly worn by Mithridates in advance. This is another scene that I get really excited about, because I just love the image that this conjures up in my head. Bithynian soldiers pillaging and robbing, but they're doing so in a kind of panicked, haunted state, as if they're expecting Mithridates himself to emerge from thin air at any moment. It actually makes me think of a scene from the 1986 Vietnam War movie Platoon, in which some American soldiers, you know, they've just missed the Viet Cong by mere seconds. They find a pot of rice still cooking, the steam and the smoke still rising from it. They've just missed them. There's something really eerie about the image that this conjures up. The idea of ghosts, you know, they're there one minute and gone the next. That's the kind of feeling I get when I imagine this scene. I can hear howling winds, grasses swaying gently in the breeze, but no Mithridates and no Pontic army. Nicomedes frets to Aquilius. Where is he? So in the midst of this mystery, an eloquent Greek orator named Pelopidas appears one day at the Bithynian camp. He says he wishes to plead Mithridates' case, in a debate to be heard by the Romans, acting almost as a jury. Well aware of the recent trend of ambitious Roman commanders undermining the Roman Senate, Mithridates wants to show the world that he's tried diplomacy, but was then shunned by the bloodthirsty Romans anyway. What allegedly followed would make quite an entertaining scene. The Roman judges listen as both sides, representatives from both Pontus and Bithynia, argue their cases. Old agreements are drudged up, accusations are levelled, bitter comments traded back and forth. But this is a sham trial. 
the Romans will not side with Mithridates over their puppet Nicomedes IV. Pelopidas returns to Mithridates and gives him the Roman response. It apparently isn't much of a response, leading Mithridates to probably make some quite fateful decisions. Rome will not abandon Bithynia, nor will they allow Mithridates to attack it. The Roman wolf enroaches slowly into Anatolia, and Mithridates considers his options. If he backs down, it won't be long before the Romans devise some wafer-thin pretexts and attack Pontus, egged on by their sycophant Nicomedes IV. Should Mithridates attack the Romans first? Should he attack Aquilius's legion that's in the region? This would risk an all-out war with the Republic. And Mithridates isn't sure that the Pontic Kingdom is ready for that yet. But what if Aquilius's legion was provoked into attacking without official support from the Senate? Mithridates and Pelopidas, along with Doryllus and Gordius, drink wine and concoct their next move. The next morning Pelopidas returns to Aquilius with an ingeniously constructed speech. And this scene will be a perfectly toned exercise in dialogue, tone, context and subtext. Pelopidas delivers a speech that paints Mithridates as the victim, warns the Romans not to overstep their mission from the Senate, and then paints a picture of the struggle the Romans would have on their hands if they attacked Pontus. The entire Near East would apparently rise up against them. Mithridates claims he can call on Greeks, Colchians, Scythians, and a multitude of other Black Sea and Eastern tribes. His son-in-law is Tigranes, of the mighty kingdom of Armenia. And the Parthian Empire also consider Mithridates a friend too. Finally, as one last barbed insult, Pelopidas claims Mithridates will help Rome put down the rebellion in Italy. At this point... After we've been cutting to and from Pelopidas to Aquilius, we'll have Aquilius absolutely explode. Who in the name of Mars is Mithridates to threaten and insult Rome? You offer to help us put down a rebellion in Italy? You say the entire East will rise against us under your banner? Pelopidas is allegedly escorted back to the border by Roman soldiers to prevent him inciting rebellion in Bithynia as he travels back to the Pontic border. Aquilius is so enraged that he doesn't even contact the Senate. He immediately prepares to invade Pontus and teach Mithridates a lesson. So the combined Roman-Bithynian force that's now going to attack Pontus is actually quite big. The first force, which is led by Aquilius and contains about 40,000 troops, will attack the south of Pontus. Cassius, a lieutenant of Aquilius, will take another 40,000 troops and advance over the Bithynian-Galatian frontier, while Oppius, another Roman leader and subordinate of Aquilius, will take another 40,000 troops and invade Cappadocia to the south of Pontus. Nicomedes IV is expected to lead the invasion of Pontus itself with 56,000 Bithynian troops. It'll be a vast, multi-pronged invasion. Mithridates has to be ready for a serious fight. The Romans are finally coming to Pontus, although in an unofficial, unsanctioned manner, and the Bithynians are going to do most of the actual invading. You might think it's unusual for a Roman legion not to be leading the charge, but keep in mind this little adventure has not been given the go-ahead by the Senate. The Romans are more providing support and rearguard action. 
Mithridates is well prepared to meet this threat. We're told he assembles a quarter of a million men. Greek phalanx-style troops from the multiple Hellenistic kingdoms, Cappadocian cavalry, Scythian bowmen, Armenian archers riding on Parthian steeds. Now, 250,000 men sounds insane for 2,000 years ago. I mean, how did any polity or military feed, clothe, train, transport and organise such an enormous number for battle? Those numbers could be very well exaggerated. Let's take this with a pinch of salt. Several close friends of Mithridates, including the brothers Archelaus and Neoptolemus, will command parts of the Pontic army. Mithridates gives his son, Arcathius, command of the prized Armenian cavalry, and he has a reputation for being a talented cavalry commander in the Pontic military. Archelaus is a nobleman of Greek Cappadocian descent. His brother, Neoptolemus, is another high-ranking officer in Mithridates' forces. Although Mithridates allegedly has a quarter of a million troops, and whether that's true or not we don't know, he only brings a part of the army, and he is outnumbered by the Roman Bithynian forces. But he plans to use a tactic from the time of Alexander the Great, basically banking on the Romans having forgotten about it over the centuries. Mithridates wants to use the chariot to turn the tide of this battle. Chariots are essentially carriages, drawn by a pair of horses, and manned by a driver and an archer. The wheels boast rotating, sickle-shaped blades projecting from the axles, and Mithridates is going to use these to devastating effect. This battle is kind of a big deal for our HBO series. Each showdown we've had has been getting a little bit bigger in scale. I mean, earlier in the story we had Mithridates' coup d'etat to take over Pontus, then we had the Battle of Cappadocia, The scale and scope of our military encounters are going to balloon. Let's hope HBO has a big enough budget at their disposal. From the perspective of how this battle will look on our TV screens, we'll have plenty of overhead drone shots to illustrate the vast numbers involved and get a sense of the positions and movements. And then we'll contrast that with a cocktail of handheld first-person perspective frames. Dolly tracking shots that drift through the carnage, almost as if the viewer is the spirit of a newly butchered soldier. The Battle of the River Amnias begins. As the first skirmishes get underway, Mithridates' son Arcathius almost gets himself into trouble when he smashes into the Bithynian infantry with his Armenian cavalry, until Neoptolemus's phalanx engages the startled invaders. Then, when the Pontic forces have sort of bunched and corralled the Bithynians into a tight group, this is when they unleash their secret weapon. The following excerpt from The Poison King does a wonderful job of painting this blood-splattered picture. Quote, They say the scythed chariots, ravenous for slaughter, sheared off limbs so suddenly that legs and arms fell writhing on the ground before a man even felt any pain. In the ardour of battle, one soldier continued to fight, not realising that his left arm and shield had been carried off in the wheel. Meanwhile, His companion attempted to rise on one leg, while his other lay twitching its toes in a pool of blood. Nicomedes' soldiers were aghast to see their mangled comrades sliced in two and still breathing. Overcome by the hideousness of the slaughter, the Bithynian ranks scattered in confusion. That's quite an image. 
all this posturing between Mithridates and Nicomedes, and now the ground is soaked in blood. The Bithynians fall apart. Half their forces are dead, while the survivors surrender that night and Mithridates' men loot their camp. Nicomedes scurries back to the Romans. Aquilius is horrified at the disaster. Nicomedes has lost a ton of men and money for absolutely nothing. But our action scenes aren't concluded just yet, because an advance party of Sarmatian cavalry detects Aquilius' camp under the cover of night. Nicomedes flees before the camp is overrun by Mithridates' forces. Now the Roman Bithynian team are in real trouble. Mithridates kills plenty more of their troops when he takes the camp, while their leadership is split up from running in two different directions. But most troubling of all here is that Aquilius has started a war without permission from Rome, lost the first battle, and now his forces are essentially rogue combatants trapped in a hostile land. Aquilius escapes the trap and heads in the direction of Pergamon, while Cassius bolts towards the island state of Rhodes. Pergamon was a Hellenistic city-state on the western coast of Anatolia. It was a long-time ally of Rome, although the relationship was a little bit one-sided. The Pergamines were often used and abused by the Roman masters. Then there was Rhodes. Rhodes was a Hellenistic island state off the southwestern coast of Anatolia. They became a maritime and commercial power with ties to Ptolemaic Egypt. In earlier centuries, Rhodes had been a friend of the Roman Republic, but the Romans eventually directly took over the island in 164 BC. So with the Roman Bithynian forces scattered and their leadership running for their lives, Mithridates now moves to expand his realm across Anatolia. He installs governors or military leaders to rule certain territories, even referring to some as satraps, the old Persian term for governor. Positioning himself as the saviour of the East, Mithridates begins sweeping social reform. He cancels all debt owed to Roman creditors. He grants tax exemptions and begins establishing a new political order that mixes the benign Persian monarchy with the democratic traditions of the Greeks. Mithridates remains concerned that plenty of wolves still hide among the sheep in his new lands. Basing this paranoia on how Roman sympathisers had helped Aquilius, Nicomedes and Cassius escape his armies. Large swaths of Anatolia begin defecting to Mithridates at this point, and even the Italic rebels fighting the social war against the Romans make contact, begging him to join forces. Mithridates promises them he'll lead armies to Rome once Asia and Greece are his. Historians since have just been blown away by the scale and pace of Mithridates' successes. In just a few years, his minor kingdom on the edge of the civilised world has expanded into an empire and positioned itself as a leading Hellenistic state that could offer an alternative to Roman rule. Anti-Roman sentiment had been felt across Greece and the Hellenistic world since long before Mithridates' birth. Mithridates leans into his role as the salvation in earnest. All over the east, the people rejoice at the coming of this saviour king. 
in the great outdoor theatre of Pergamon, Mithridates, dressed in his finest white and purple Persian garments, and his Hellenistic diadem on his head, begins his speech. Adrian Mayer, in The Poison King, states, quote, It is an accurate summary of Mithridates' program, his foreign policy, and his rationale for war with Rome. It offers the best insights we can have into Mithridates' vision of himself as the inheritor and unifier of Greek and Persian cultures, the ideal alternative to Rome, and it explains his compelling appeal to so many diverse groups outside of Rome. End quote. But behind closed doors, Mithridates' paranoia about Roman fifth columnists in his new lands drives him to commit his next acts. Where are the enemy leadership? Nicomedes is hurrying to Pergamon, trying to catch up with Aquilius, who is now already travelling to Rhodes to link up with Cassius and get the hell out of Dodge. And back in Rome itself, what reaction did the news of the chaos and the defeat in Anatolia elicit? I mean, this was an unauthorised attack, and it was a defeat by a group of Anatolians under some wannabe Alexander the Great, who was also a despotic minor king. It also saw the flight of three Roman generals, and was a loss of possession and of honour. The Roman Senate moves to officially declare war on Mithridates now. This is a watermark moment in our HBO show. The mortal Roman rivals Marius and Sulla, having both achieved greatness in the ongoing social war, now compete for the posting to take an army to Anatolia and restore Roman honour. Sulla gets the job, but it's a difficult situation. Italy is in open revolt as the civil convulsions of the social war continue. Roman armies are already engaged on multiple fronts, and the Roman economy is stretched thin with little money to spare for yet another war. To top it all off, the supporters of Sulla and Marius are now openly coming to blows, attacking each other in the streets. Rome is in chaos. Mithridates timed all this pretty well, didn't he? Rome is distracted and divided. A united response will not be forthcoming just yet. Mithridates has time to accomplish some other pressing objectives. Firstly, the capture of the strategic island state of Rhodes. But before that, Mithridates receives some wonderful news. Aquilius, the greedy Roman pig, has been captured by partisans at the city of Mytilene. Strapped up onto a donkey, Aquilius is paraded through Anatolia on his way to Mithridates, forced to repeat his crimes and his name to all of the people he passes. Romans living in these parts keep a low profile at this time, as any mention of the name of Aquilius enraged anyone within living memory. His exorbitant taxes had impoverished the area, and his brutal methods of suppressing the Sun Citizens' Rebellion had left long-term anti-Roman sentiments stewing in the region. Aquilius Jr. had proven to be a chip off the old block, blackmailing Mithridates' mother, Queen Laodice, during her reign, and ordering Nicomedes IV to attack Pontus out of pure greed. What must have been going through Aquilius' mind as he sat tied up on that donkey? He couldn't have imagined what awaited him in Pergamon. The following scene is quite similar to a Game of Thrones scene, where Khal Drogo pours molten gold onto the head of Viserys. It's a motif that pops up sometimes in ancient history, and just like in Game of Thrones, it's going to be an immensely satisfying one for our viewers too. 
I will defer to Adrienne Mayer to paint this picture in an excerpt from page 169 of The Poison King. Quote, the king, Mithridates, reveled in his victories and devised a public punishment for Aquilius. The Roman deserved to die for invading Pontus and preying on Anatolia. The king's heralds summoned the populace to the theatre of Dionysus, where Mithridates had recently delivered his speech declaring war on Rome. The crowd watches as a super-hot bonfire is stoked in the centre of the theatre. Next, a giant figure well-known in Pergamon, a freakishly tall soldier called Bastarna, riding a huge horse at a stately pace around the fire, dragging a long chain. At the end of the chain stumbles Aquilius. Suspense builds, and a dramatic recitation of the prisoner's crimes incites the audience. Next, with exaggerated ceremony, heaps of gold coins from Mithridates' treasury are trundled out. The glittering coins ring out as men laboriously tip them into a large stone crucible suspended over the fire. Within a few minutes, the coins are melted down. A glimmer of what is in store begins to dawn on the crowd and Aquilius. Then his captors force his jaws open and pour the molten gold down the greedy Roman's throat. A diabolical last meal for a glutton of gold. End quote. Mithridates isn't playing. His hatred of the Romans and all they stand for will only intensify. The gauntlet has been thrown down. But this is just one Roman. What about all the others? The tens of thousands that are spread across Anatolia. A large number had fled from inner Anatolia towards cities located on the western coast, essentially collecting themselves up into congregated pockets. I now present to the viewers what will be the climax of Act 1 and the conclusion of the third episode of our HBO series. This is an event that resonates like an earthquake and bookmarks the kind of end of the beginning of our tale. This event, which takes place in 88 BC, will come to be known as the Asiatic Vespers. 2,000 years later, it remains an infamous occurrence in which Mithridates orchestrates the premeditated murder of approximately 80,000 Roman men, women and children across Anatolia. 80,000 sounds like an insane number, but historians for the most part tend to see it as an accurate figure. Even if we halve it, that's still 40,000 Romans butchered in the space of probably just a few days. Ordinary everyday people are spurred on by Mithridates' revolution, and they probably needed little convincing, given how the rapacious policies of Rome were so widely detested. A lot of people were willingly complicit in Mithridates' plot to exterminate an entire group of people. By converging in coastal cities, the fugitive Romans ironically became an easier target, allowing Mithridates to wipe out large numbers in one go. All across his newly won realm, Romans and Italics are hunted down and massacred. Long-simmering resentment of Roman taxation, occupation and enslavement explodes. And while the Romans had been admired earlier in their history for their battle prowess, courage and their virtue, they were now seen as greedy, cold, arrogant and aggressive. We are told tales of Romans fleeing the violence, 
seeking sanctuary in temples, supposedly sacred and inviolable places, only to be hacked to pieces anyway as they cowered around the statues of the gods. This is an event of enormous importance in our HBO series. I'm drawing inspiration here from how Game of Thrones portrayed the Red Wedding, with a kind of mournful, sickening tone of these scenes. It will be a hideous collage of butchery and murder. The faint echoes of screams will melt into our score, which I hear is a kind of stark, stripped-back piano track. Make no mistake about it, this sequence is going to be controversial. There's going to be uproar on the internet in the hours after it airs. We're making a choice not to hold back on anything. Romans are going to be beheaded, stabbed, thrown off buildings, burned alive. Some of them are going to be the innocent spouses and relatives of Roman traitors. And we're not cutting away either. The shock factor needs to be potent here. This is no holds barred gloves off kind of stuff. It is the total absolute butchery of an entire group of people planned and ordered by the protagonist of this show. Now this will be a shock, not just for the sake of shocking our viewers, but to accurately express the sentiment that the classical world felt once word got out. Historians have since viewed the Asiatic Vespers as a huge mistake on Mithridates' part. As Dwayne W. Roller describes in Empire of the Black Sea, many other Hellenistic kingdoms and city-states although they had no love for the Romans, were profoundly unnerved by the massacre. Quote, it forever became a blot on Mithridates' reputation and seriously damaged his image as a just and forgiving conqueror. Over a dozen ancient sources mentioned the event, all in strong condemnation. Obviously many of these reports are Roman and might be expected to react unfavorably, yet Greek sources are equally negative. Roller continues, the reaction to the massacre was swift. Ephesus, the king's headquarters when the orders were given, promptly declared war on Pontus and adopted a revisionist history, stating that the Ephesians had never wanted him. Other cities reacted with varying degrees of horror. End quote. How did Mithridates even give this order? I mean, we have no idea. We can guess, I mean, Adrian Mayer has some great ideas in The Poison King, you know, hidden messages, wax tablets, notes concealed in shoes, hair braids, sandals, under saddles, who knows? Either way, it was a remarkable feat to accomplish at a time when mass communication like we have today just didn't exist. His satraps and lieutenants were all given word, 30 days in advance, and carried out their orders to the letter. I mean, they're all complicit. Despite the horror that some felt, the acquiescence of the numerous Hellenistic city-states to the Asiatic Vespers bound them to Mithridates' cause through bloodshed. Complicity in this horrific conspiracy cut off any other options of Hellenistic Asia Minor. They're all tied to the same cause now, and that cause needs to keep moving further west before a proper Roman response arrives. But what kind of response must Mithridates have expected? I mean, one was coming, surely, but when? He probably counted on the upheaval being caused by the social war, along with the beefing between Marius and Sulla, to delay any proper official Roman response. And the losses incurred in Asia Minor would have dealt a huge financial blow to the Republic too. Mithridates has illuminated himself as a mortal threat to the Republic, 
Our modern sensibilities could label the Asiatic Vespers as terrorism, or even genocide or a crime against humanity. The ancient world, especially the Near East and the Mediterranean during classical antiquity, was a fundamentally violent place, however, and applying a modern lens to historical events can be contentious at the least. Adrian Mayer wonderfully sums up the heroic image that Mithridates conjured up after these events. His destiny now intertwined with Rome, along with the beginning of an almost mythological ascent towards becoming one of the Republic's greatest enemies. Quote, Mithridates' dual image as a tragic hero confronting the juggernaut of empire and as an icon of cruelty consisted throughout the Middle Ages into modern times. Even though Mithridates' Greco-Persian heritage and appeal combined Western and Eastern traditions, his lifelong conflict with Rome seemed to epitomise for many a collision of East and West. For the Romans, Mithridates' Greekness made him culturally superior, but his Persian Anatolian heritage made him an inferior barbarian. Cicero, who lived through the Mithridatic Wars, demonstrates the Roman ambivalence towards the man who perpetrated the miserable and inhuman massacre of all Roman citizens in so many cities at one and the same moment, with the intention of erasing all memory of the Roman name and every trace of its empire. Unquote. Mithridates' dual ancestry positioned him as the ideal figurehead of the struggle for Eastern freedom against Roman enslavement. Adrian Mayer describes how Mithridates' Persian ancestry played as big of a role as his Greek did. Quote, Herodotus, Xenophon, Strabo and other Greek historians describe the Persians' dualistic worldview in which light and truth, Arta, eternally battled the evil forces of darkness and lies, Druge. Dishonesty was reprehensible. Debt was a morally deplorable condition because indebted people were susceptible to deceit and enslavement. Debtors and slaves were unable to exercise free will, unable to choose to struggle against darkness. These beliefs explain why the hatred of Romans was so profound in the Persian-influenced province of Asia. Under Rome's rapacious and corrupt taxation policies, moneylenders charged exorbitant interest rates and confiscated all of an indebted man's possessions when he defaulted. Then he was enslaved and sold to Roman masters. Roman taxes plunged entire cities into overwhelming debt, forcing them to sell artworks and other treasures, their land and their own people. Even the wealthiest kings succumbed to bankruptcy and blackmail. To oppose the Romans was to fight on the side of truth and light. End quote. It is around this time that Mithridates comes into possession of a very rare talisman-natured artefact. During the Asiatic Vespers, the island of Kos handed over some Ptolemaic treasures to Mithridates. They had been stored there for safekeeping by Queen Cleopatra III during a past political crisis. Among these treasures is a cloak said to have belonged to Alexander the Great himself. To have such an irreplaceable piece of history delivered to him, its illustrious power clear for all to understand, must have confirmed in Mithridates' mind that he was destined for greatness. He would carry the mantle of Alexander as the next great conqueror, 
he would free the Greco-Persian world from annihilation by Rome. Let me set our last scene. Mithridates has the Ptolemaic treasures brought to his new headquarters, a lavish palace complex in the western coast city of Pergamon. Rumours had swirled for some time about its contents since its departure from the island of Kos. Mithridates dismisses all in attendance and stares at the unopened gold-lined boxes. Behind him is a balcony that allows him a wide, uninterrupted view of the Aegean, beyond which lies Greece and the West. The sunset is a dazzling kaleidoscope of pink and orange, and the sapphire-coloured waves slowly heave in the distance. As the beams of the dying sun illuminate Mithridates in a golden hue, he opens the chest and slowly lifts a pale, purple-tinted cloak from within. His eyes whirl in intensity, becoming teary with emotion, as he stares down at the cloak that Alexander the Great himself once wore as he conquered the world. As we quietly track backward from Mithridates, his figure is cast almost entirely in shadow, with only the edges of his frame illuminated in golden orange. He lifts the cloak close to his face, the rays of sun shining through and casting a spectral purple haze across the room. Cut to credits. This brings us to the conclusion of episode 4 of this podcast series on the life of Mithridates. Our protagonist has committed the ultimate act of dedication to this cause. There's no turning back now. How will Rome respond? Will there be full-scale war? Tune in for episode 5 of this podcast series and find out. Thank you for your time, thank you for listening, and take care. To subscribe to this podcast, just search for the Historical Motion Picture Organization on whatever platform you use, and hopefully you'll find me there. If you want to follow the podcast on social media, you can find me on Twitter by searching at HMPO Podcast, or on Instagram with the handle HMPO underscore podcast. You can find the show on YouTube by searching HMPO Podcast, and you can contact me directly by email at hmpo.podcast at gmail.com. Growing a podcast from humble beginnings is a very difficult thing to do, so if you can support the HMPO in any way, it would mean a lot to me. You can do this by following me on social media, you can share the podcast with even one other person, and you can subscribe to me and give me a good rating on whatever platform you listen on. I will really appreciate it, so thank you for listening, Thank you for your support, and I hope you'll join me again soon in the ancient past.